This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, November 25th. I'm Rachel Del Judas. And I'm Virginia Allen. How can we celebrate Thanksgiving safely this year? Is it okay to have dinner at your grandmother's house like you always have? Today, our colleague Kate Trinko, editor-in-chief of the Daily Signal, talks with Doug Badger, a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation, and Dr. Kevin Pham, a visiting policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation, to find out how we can still celebrate the holiday and keep our loved ones safe. And don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, onto our top news. In spite of legal challenges from President Donald Trump's campaign, both Pennsylvania and Nevada have certified their election results for former Vice President Joe Biden. On Tuesday, Pennsylvania Governor Tim Wolf tweeted, Today at PA State Department certified the results of the November 3rd election in Pennsylvania for President and Vice President of the United States. As required by federal law, I have signed the Certificate of Ascertainment for the State of Electors for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. In a statement per Fox News, Bob Bauer, senior advisor for Biden for President, said that it's readily apparent to everyone besides Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and Jenna Ellis that this election is over and that Joe Biden won resoundingly. President Trump made a surprising appearance at the White House press briefing on Tuesday to announce the exciting news that the Dow Jones Industrial Average surpassed 30,000 points for the first time in history. Take a listen to the president's brief remarks per Fox Business. Uh, the stock market's just broken 30,000, never been broken, that number. That's a sacred number, 30,000. Nobody thought they'd ever see it. Uh, that's the ninth time since uh, the beginning of 2020. And it's the 48th time that we've broken records in during the Trump administration. And I just want to congratulate all the people within the administration that work so hard. And most importantly, I want to congratulate the people of our country because there are no people like you. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. The governor of New Mexico has shut down some grocery stores for two weeks. About 12 stores in the state have been forced by a public health order to close, which mandates that institutions that have four or more rapid responses of COVID-19 cases reported during a 14-day period are to shut down for two weeks. The stores affected in New Mexico include, per the center square, two Walmarts in Albuquerque and one in Santa Fe, and Albertsons in Roswell, a Smith's Food and Drug Center in Albuquerque, and New Mexico Food Distribution Center in Albuquerque. Seattle's city council members voted Monday to cut the police department's budget by 20% in their city. Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin said in a statement that she plans to sign the bill implementing the budget cuts. Seven of the nine Seattle City Council members had originally pledged to cut the budget by 15%, but were largely still willing to support the 20% cut. I applaud the City Council for taking a more deliberate and measured approach to the 2021 Seattle Police Department budget, Duncan said in a statement. Councilwoman Deborah Juarez said defund police by 50% was a slogan. And it was an empty and misleading slogan. It caused damage, it caused pain, it caused trauma, it caused anger. Seattle police officers have been leaving the police force in much greater numbers than anticipated. As of the end of October, 134 officers had resigned, and in October alone, when only seven officers were expected to depart, 
23 officers left the Seattle Police Department. Now stay tuned for Kate Trinko's conversation with the Heritage Foundation's Doug Badger and Dr. Kevin Pham as they discuss how we can all safely celebrate Thanksgiving this year. It's because of support from listeners like you that we can continue to produce podcasts like Heritage Explains and SCOTUS 101. And you can help us keep it up by going to www.heritage.org slash podcast today to make your tax-deductible gift. Joining us today are Doug Badger, a Senior Fellow in Health Policy at the Heritage Foundation, and Dr. Kevin Pham, a Visiting Policy Analyst at the Heritage Foundation. Doug and Kevin, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you, Kate. So there's so much to get into on the coronavirus front, but let's start with Thanksgiving. California, rather infamously, has said that Thanksgiving gatherings should be limited to three households, should be held outdoors, and shouldn't last more than two hours. Oregon's governor, Kate Brown, has suggested that neighbors call the police if they see people violating her rules about COVID-19 during this time period. And one of those rules is that no more than six people can be indoors at any given time. So... On the flip side, though, we're seeing memes online spread with messages like, well, if you have a big Thanksgiving, get ready for small funerals at Christmas. So what factors should people consider as they decide what to do on Thanksgiving? And what would you say matters most? And what is the media overhyping? Doug, let's start with you on this one. Sure. And, and uh, Kevin can speak more um, effectively to the, to the medical aspects. There's no question that we're seeing a big increase in cases right now. It's not unique to the United States, uh, certainly, but uh, it is something that uh, that is concerning. And and I would say in particular uh, for people who have older relatives or or older themselves, they would think very carefully about um, going to uh, large indoor gatherings at this point. Uh, or even family gatherings uh, because of the risk of of COVID. Obviously, this is one of these diseases that uh, in some ways, fortunately, is is serious and life-threatening predominantly uh, for older older people. I mean, 80% of the deaths are among people 65 and older, 95% are among people 55 and older. Um, And so there, there are people at heightened risk and certainly um, with respect to the nursing home population, it's even higher. So I, I would I would try to make smart decisions, um, and particularly taking age and chronic illness into account. You don't want to expose someone you love uh, to an infection that could result in a very serious illness. Right, and I want to add too that it's not just that these there's a disease that's about that could um, seriously affect our older Americans, our elders, um, because that's true with many diseases, especially influenza is particularly deadly. What may, what's, what's different about COVID is that it's extremely infectious, it's extremely contagious. And so if one person gets it, they'll be able to transmit it fairly readily. And the problem that we're, that we're most concerned about, the whole reason why we're asking everyone to wear masks where they can't, um, where they can't um, isolate for distance from other people is because there's a short period of time where you're you're not showing any symptoms and you're able to transmit the disease. And that seems to be when most of the transmission is occurring because 
if you're not sick, then you're then you're out about, you're in the society and you're in the community interacting with other people. And so because of that, infections are able to get around very far in society very quickly. And we need to be wary about that and, and understand that that's why we're asking everyone to be so careful. And after that, then yeah, it's, it's extremely important to be aware of who's in your circle, in your orbit, in your community, in your family. If you have someone who is you know, 85 years or older and you're interacting with them on a daily basis or even regularly every week or something like that, then you have to be extra careful with your own health because, because of this infectious, uh, the, because of the contagiousness. You don't want to be an accidental vector for getting the, the virus there. That having been said, uh, you know, what I'm doing with Thanksgiving is I'm not going home to visit family who includes a lot of older relatives. Um, I'm having a, what's called, you know, a Friendsgiving. I'm having a couple of people over for, um, for, for lunch on Thanksgiving day and, and we're all at the lowest age group. So, you know, there are ways to do this carefully and it's just, it's just up to all of us to take responsibility for our own health and the health of those around us. So as we look ahead to Christmas, to Hanukkah, New Year's, one of the complicating factors is that not only do we have to juggle the risks with indoor gatherings, but many Americans must travel to be with their loved ones. So what is the impact of people taking planes, mingling in airports, or, you know, mingling in roadside stops if they're driving? Is this something that could potentially exacerbate the spread of COVID in a serious way? Um, Kevin, let's start with you on this one. Uh, the answer to that is, is certainly it can. Any place that you have a hub of travel or a hub of people, people who are coming together where you can't necessarily um, keep some kind of distance between yourself and a stranger, you don't know what their their health status is. Anytime that happens, then you, you stand the risk of an infection without you knowing about it. So far, it's been a theoretical concern. We'll, hopefully, we won't see that become materialize into something more practical. But air travel thus far has not been linked to any outbreaks. So it does seem like we can do this safely. It's just, again, it's incumbent on everyone to, to take those precautions. And I think masking indoors is, is going to be a very, is going to play a very important part, especially in the airports, especially in the airplanes. Uh, airplanes have special filtration systems, but they really rely on a person's respiration staying close to that person and then being filtered out. So um, that's, that's going to be important. And the other thing too, uh, which would be very helpful is if people if people try to make an effort to get themselves tested before traveling, you know if you if you test you get you test negative, then it's going to be a lot safer. Now there's the there's the outside chance that you'll have a, a false negative, but if everyone's testing, then you'll be able to catch uh, probably the majority of cases. And if if people who test positive decide not to travel, then there's going to be a lot less COVID nineteen traveling around the country. On similar lines, what metrics should lawmakers and individuals deciding about risk level comfort be looking at when they are considering the state of COVID-19 in their area? Doug, what do you think? Well, I, I, I'm going to challenge the question, Kate, <laughs> a little bit. Um, I, I think the theme that both Kevin and I are sounding is that people need to be taking responsibility for themselves and they need to be making smart decisions. The decisions you make are highly dependent on facts and circumstances. As Kevin said, for him, uh, getting together with some friends on, on Thanksgiving, all in the younger age group, is, is uh, you know, a, a very safe alternative. For an older guy like me, uh, my wife and I are going to have one couple over. We're in Florida. We're going to eat outdoors, and uh, we're going to take extra precautions. One of the real errors, I think, that... Um, has been present in our public policy on COVID from the beginning 
has been this command and control in which people are told to be confined, businesses and churches and schools are, are shuttered. Um, and, and what happens from that is uh, some people understandably react negatively to that uh, and are, are maybe uh, more likely to take a defiant posture that maybe takes the illness a little too lightly. Um, we're adults, okay? We, we, we need to make decisions for ourselves. We need to make informed decisions. And so if anything, I would say that the, the way public policy is, it has been done on COVID too often has, uh, has focused on confining people and limiting their liberties rather than helping them get informed and make, uh, making good decisions uh, about what their own conduct. Well, I think that's a great point. So let me rephrase the question a little bit. Um, and this is why I love working with Doug. He always calls me out. Um, no. Um, but so, you know, I've heard conservatives online have sometimes debated, like, is it the number of cases that matter or the number of deaths that matter? And then, of course, you know, we see media reports, which for someone like me, who's not a data analyst, it's hard to know, like, this many cases per 100,000. Is this bad or is this to be expected. So as an individual, when you're making your decisions, what are the numbers you should be looking at to get an accurate sense of how bad it is in your area? Well, I, I think the first thing I'd look at would be my driver's license. And depending on my date of birth, <laughs> uh, I would have a pretty good idea of what my risks of serious illness are. Uh, the second is Kevin uh, notes, um, for, for those who aren't in a, a particularly high risk group, they have to think about the folks with whom they come in contact on a regular basis and, and be concerned, as he says, that you don't become a vector of the disease uh, for someone for whom it is uh, very serious. Obviously, if you're in a community where there is a widespread outbreak uh, and you mentioned a few things, obviously, number of cases, uh, number of deaths and all that's in your local newspaper. Um, and you'll probably see pretty easily um, uh, from the local, just for, again, from the local news without having to go to uh, specialized websites, what's going on in your hospitals. Uh, if you're seeing a situation in which hospitals are, are getting crowded, death rates are rising, and, and your uh, case levels are uh, much higher than they were, say, over the summer or last spring, uh, then you're probably in an area where you should be uh, taking some extra precautions. So per your earlier point, Doug, um, states and localities across the country are really replaying the spring. We're seeing lockdowns happen in L.A., New Mexico's having some, and I expect they'll be more announced in upcoming weeks. Um, what did we learn this spring about lockdowns and whether they work or not? And specifically, because these lockdowns really dramatically differ from each other, they focus on different things and shut down different businesses and places. Um, are there particular lockdown measures that are more or less effective? Kevin, let's start with you on this one. I'll, I'll answer this question, but I think Doug's has Doug's going to have a better better answer, or at least a more in depth answer. But from from my perspective, what the lockdowns in spring, what we really learned from it is that there's there's a couple of things that we can learn from it. Number one is that it did what it was intended to do as it was originally intended, which was to flatten the curve. If you look at the, if you look at the curve in, um, in the number of cases and in deaths, 
they hit a peak in April. The cases peaked early April and then deaths peaked mid-April. And after that, the, the whole curve scalped. You know, we didn't just flatten the curve. We, we sliced the top off it, essentially, which was a good thing. Um, it, it did come at a tremendous cost to, to our economy. But, you know, it did, as I said, what it was originally intended to do. But the... The, the sort of mission of flatten the curve became to crush COVID in in America, and that's that's really an unrealistic um, that's really an unrealistic goal. Even when we have a vaccine, then it's going to take a little bit of time for that that to to get out to the community to the broad community. And so we learned that it it can do it, but what there's a, there's I think what's more important here is what we didn't learn. We didn't learn apparently that these things are not sustainable over the long run. And I think part of the part of what's responsible for the current rise in cases is that people are tired tired of being told not to do this, not to do that. And and they're seeing the uh, the differential enforcement of these rules. You pe- people can't go to a funeral with all the people with all their loved ones, but we're having these massive uh, public funerals in multiple cities for for people who are held in high esteem by certain political groups. When when people are seeing that, then then they then they realize that the people who are making the rules, the policymakers, they're they're not taking their own rules seriously, and they're not our kings. So why should we follow their rules? And that's that's having a, a major impact on how people take seri- how seriously people are taking this disease. And what we have not learned from these lockdowns is making the situation worse, in my opinion. Doug, did you want to speak to the lockdowns? Yeah, I think uh, Kevin summed it up. You know, in March, remember, uh, we didn't have tests. um, And um, partly because the CDC test didn't work and partly because the FDA and the CMS wouldn't allow alternative testing. And so suddenly we found ourselves with people showing up in uh, New York hospitals and particularly elsewhere in the Northeast uh, with this dread disease. And we began to get this idea that wow, this thing is spread much farther and much more quickly than we thought. And the lockdowns were, as Kevin said, a reasonable response. But certainly national lockdowns of indefinite duration uh, aren't uh, sustainable and and, uh, it's just not going to happen. Uh, Again, I would say if you're there, there, it is conceivable that we will get areas where perhaps Hospitals might be overrun or overrun or their capacity heavily taxed where it might be uh, on a localized episodic basis. The lockdown may be part of a, of a broader strategy to uh, preserve hospital capacity. But lockdowns are an expedient. And somewhere along the way, uh, they were sort of repackaged as a solution. They're not a solution. Uh, they're not they're not a solution here and they haven't been anywhere else in the world any any country that's been successful at combating the pandemic um, has either not used lockdowns or if they've used them they've used them only as an adjunct to uh, more effective policy interventions so there's been good news on the vaccine front in recent weeks with trial results indicating that the vaccines uh, for covid nineteen largely work so Let's start first with the practicalities. What do we know about when the vaccine might start being available and how many folks do we need to get vaccinated to get herd immunity? Uh, Doug, let's start with you on this one. All right, I'm gonna have a short answer, which is Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) So with herd immunity, we're still not 100% sure 
about how much, um, what percent of the population needs to be uh, immune to this virus. And I do say immune because because uh, the people who have been infected and have recovered, they're going to count towards this herd immunity. We've been under the assumption that it's going to take about 60 to 70% of people being immune for us to achieve herd immunity with COVID-19. With, uh, with other diseases, it can be as low as like 50%. But since COVID-19 uh, spread so fast, and you're going to need a larger percentage of people who will be immune. And it's a little bit hard to track who has been infected because there's been there seems to be a very large number of completely asymptomatic cases. Uh, so we could actually be a little bit closer than we than we thought. But anyways, that having been said, we're looking at we're looking at about sixty percent of people being immune. That's that's sort of the goal here, and that's that's a large that's a large number of people. We're talking about three hundred thirty plus million people in this country, and so the the rollout of the vaccine is going to be really important. It's going to be targeted, which all of the all of the COVID precautions, all the COVID measures that we should have been taking, they should always have been targeted. And so I think the 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 rollout of the vaccines, the plans that they're going to have for it is is one of the one of the bright spots in the the pandemic response in America. It's going to first go out to um to those at risk and those who work who work with those at risk, so nursing home workers and uh and then first responders. And then slowly over time uh, I can't really give a, a, a timetable because I don't know how long it's going to take. That's, this is more a logistical concern. But over time, then uh, the vaccine will be made available to the broader public. And once that starts happening, it's going to take a couple months, and then you'll have a large number of people who are vaccinated. Obviously, in some communities, it'll be easier to get more vaccines out, and in other communities, it's going to take a little bit longer. But you know, when that starts, when it starts getting out into the community for for anyone to who wants it, then we should be seeing cases uh, start to start to plummet, and along with cases, just hospitalization and deaths should start to plummet after that. So polling shows that many Americans are nervous about taking a vaccine, um, one that's so new that we don't have any long-term testing of. Kevin, what do you think about the risks of the vaccines, and how should Americans face this? Um, face how they decide whether to take it or not. Um, I'll start by saying that as soon as one is available to me, I'm, I am going to get it. People have challenged me and said, you know, you first. I will say, gladly, I will raise my arm to get a vaccine. I think we're going to have to try to figure out how to do a Facebook Live of you taking the vaccine, Kevin. (laughs) I'd be happy to do it when that happens. What I would say to those who are hesitant about it is, you know, I completely understand. This is the fastest the vaccine's ever made all the way through the, through the, the trial process. And part of that is, actually, I would say most of that is because of the government action in um, underwriting all the risk it takes in developing a new drug. So the the safety precautions have not been shortchanged. They are going through the they are going through all three phases of pre pre-market um, trials, clinical uh, clinical trials. And in order to participate in Operation Warp Speed, which all of these have um, have done, all the all the candidates have done so far, they they all require at least 30,000 participants and um, a median follow-up time of two months, which isn't as long-term as some people would like, but we have we do have a decent amount of follow-up uh, information. Not quite a year yet, but you know the the first people who started taking the vaccines were um, were over the summer, so we have several months of long-term long-term data, and we have all these people who are who have received the the vaccines, and none of these vaccines have had um, a strong enough reaction, except for one AstraZeneca vaccine. None of these had had a strong enough reaction that would cause the, uh, a halt in the testing. 
And these are over over 30,000 plus um, across all three of the current um, the current front runners of the vaccines. And we're talking, um, I think we're talking at least at least 200,000 um, participants. So any of these three vaccines are probably going to be very safe. And I, I had mentioned that um, they stopped the AstraZeneca trials for a little bit, but then after investigation, they had determined that it wasn't caused by the vaccine, and so they continued on again. And AstraZeneca was um, just just complete certain endpoints, and they're going to be seeking EUA soon as well, an emergency use authorization. So there's a lot of safety data behind these things. Obviously, no one's had one of these vaccines for longer than a year, so I do understand people's concerns, but um, I think the those concerns are are going to be very small. The chance of something have that is going to be very far, very far outside of a, a normal range. And and once again, once the vaccine gets authorized, I'm gonna I'm gonna take it. Great. So on the policy front, we've seen that lawmakers are not hesitant to take action. But are there particular actions they should be taking or areas they should focus on? Doug, I'm gonna turn this one over to you. Thank you. Yeah, I would I would talk about three things that I think are essential. Uh, the first is uh, nursing home safety. We are seeing an increase in cases in nursing homes. That is very, very concerning. 40% of deaths associated with COVID have been uh, in uh, among nursing home residents. And an increase in cases among the frail elderly and congregate settings is very, very concerning. I'll let Kevin talk. Kevin's laid out some specific policy prescriptions uh, that the government should follow in, in protecting nursing home residents. The second and the thing that's very, very important is that the FDA approve uh, home rapid tests that don't require laboratory analysis. Let us test ourselves. Uh, the FDA is reluctant to do it. They did approve one home test uh, recently, which is which is great. Unfortunately, still requires a prescription, costs around 50 bucks. That's simply not uh, conducive to the kind of broad, widespread screening where we get to learn our COVID status uh, on a very fast basis, and we get to repeat that test uh, multiple times. There are uh, tests that have been developed that cost about a dollar each. They're just paper strips and, and, you know, you take a saliva sample and you get the results in 15 minutes or so. Uh, these can be, these cost about a dollar to produce. Uh, we could have 10 or 20 million tests performed every day. We could be testing kids in school each twice a week. Um, uh, people could test themselves in their homes before going to family gatherings. Um, but unfortunately, FDA hasn't approved them. Uh, Dr. Fauci last week, of all people, in an interview said uh, that if he could do one thing on testing, it would be flooding the zone with tests, and in particular, tests that you can do at home. Uh, and I certainly hope the FDA will find its way uh, in time for Christmas uh, to allow this kind of widespread testing uh, to go on. Uh, once people know what their, what their status is, uh, they can take much more intelligent precautions than, uh, than what we're doing right now. And the third thing, as I mentioned, is to um, pr provide uh, temporary isolation facilities. People could voluntarily use. The hotel industry has been clobbered by this, uh, by the pandemic and the, uh, and the, and the shutdowns and, and the reluctance to travel. Um, they would make excellent facilities for people if they, 
don't want to go home and expose their family to the infection. They know they've got a positive test. Give them a place to go to recover without exposing other people uh, to the infection. If we can identify people who are infected and separate them from the uninfected, we can do what lockdowns can't do, which is actually begin to push back and reverse the course of the pandemic. I think those, um, those that, that kind of voluntary isolation quarters, that would be a really, a really great thing for, for, this, for the society at large. But you know, if we can't do that for, we can't, if we can't do that broadly, and we should at least be able to do, speaking of nursing homes, we should at least be able to do that for uh, nursing home workers. You know, if they work on, if they're on, for instance, on service for two weeks at a time or so, you know, maybe we can house them in, in, a, in a dormitory, test them first, and then keep them isolated there. Can't go out, they'll have their food come to them. You know, it, it's, it's sort of reminiscent of the, the NBA bubble situation that they had to, to protect the NBA workers and the, the players and everything. If it's, if it's good enough for LeBron James, it's good enough for my grandma, honestly. You know, we should, as Doug had mentioned, as we had all been mentioning, all of our all of our focus should be on those who are at the most risk, which is those in nursing homes. They are confined to a residence and they're indoors at the time and they're they're full of people who are at the highest risk. So that you're concentrating all the risk in these buildings. So all of your focus should be on on protecting them. Uh, rapid testing should be used. Um, the CMS guidance, I believe, said uh, they workers should be tested once a week. They're, you know, ideally you'd be tested before every single shift, but as that's not as that's not necessarily uh, feasible, then keeping them dormed on on the premises or something like that would be would be helpful as well. But the long story short is we, the only there's only three ways that a case of COVID nineteen can get into a nursing home. One is through staff or faculty, as we had been talking about, and two is through visitors. And visitations have been extremely restricted, so I don't think that's that's driving much of the uh, the increase in nursing home cases. And three is by forcing nursing homes to take uh, to readmit patients with with active infections, which um, thankfully that's been stopped now. But that that's been one of the the main drivers for deaths deaths and mortalities in the the New York area and several other states as well. But we need to we uh, nursing home residents aren't aren't getting aren't getting COVID nineteen organically. It's coming in, and we need to really have strong controls on that access point. But um, so that's, this has all been critical, but I do want to highlight something that, that has been done recently is uh, CMS has decided to cover monoclonal antibody treatments for all Medicare beneficiaries, which would include um, nursing home residents. This would be a tremendous, a tremendous benefit because uh, the best time to treat COVID-19 is before it becomes a serious infection. And these, these drugs, these are monoclonal antibodies, I believe uh, the president received Regeneron. I believe it was. These things have the most effect when you have a, a very, or, or at least a relatively mild illness. And so, if they're able to get that, and they're already in the facilities, they might be able to run infusions. If they're able to get that early and get it without cost, then you know we could be seeing a large impact, a large positive impact on the mortality in, in nursing home deaths. And that would be a, that would be a tremendous benefit to, to what we're seeing right now. Um, but long story short, we need to be protecting, we need to be focusing the majority of our efforts on the nursing homes.
So Kevin, you just mentioned some medical treatments that we have now that we didn't have at the beginning of this. And we talked earlier in this uh, interview about how we now know, you know, people 55 and older are at far more risk than those younger, et cetera. Um, but more big picture here, you know, we've had COVID for, I guess, close to a year now in the U.S. Um, what have we learned? And do you have any thoughts about how many people are being affected by long-term health issues related to COVID? So we've we've learned quite a bit. One of the most one of the most breathtaking things that we've learned is that what our what we were told initially on how to treat COVID nineteen was exactly the wrong thing to do. Um, what we were told from doctors who were treating um, patients in Italy and in China, uh, we were told to avoid anti-inflammatory drugs and to ventilate early and aggressively. And you know this is this is they were doing their best to try to keep, keep their patients alive. I do not blame them for being wrong about this. They just got a sudden flood of patients and they were doing their best. Uh, but that information turned out to be exactly wrong. You want to you want to spare the ventilators as much as possible because that only makes it worse. And it makes it worse because the, the primary mortality driving factor is an inflammatory process that goes haywire. And that is that is sort of exacerbated by the use of ventilators. So that's one of the big things that we have learned about this. Another thing is that um, we've learned that it affects mostly, or the most severe effects of the, the disease is mostly concentrated in those who are uh, who are older. It, it start the risks of mortality start to increase at 50, but it really ramps up once you're looking at anyone over 65. Um, that's the other thing. That's another thing that we've learned. Other than that, we've we've discovered that some drugs have been particularly helpful. Uh, steroids, in particular, it's an old old drugs, um, dexamethasone been using that for years now and it has an, a real impact on mortality a uh, couple other couple other um, it gets a little bit into the weeds but we've we've learned how to treat COVID-19 a lot better and um, that's as far as we learn things that we have developed are drugs like Regeneron the Eli, Eli Lilly uh, monoclonal antibodies um, and we have vaccines online now too so there's a lot of things that we have now that we don't that we didn't have at the beginning and not to mention all the all the tests. We're routinely breaking testing records daily now. We don't even talk about it because it happens so frequently. But we're testing, uh, I think, 1.5 million people. Or at least we're recording 1.5 million tests a day um, this month. So that gives us a lot more intelligence. It gives us a lot more capacity, capability to to respond to an outbreak. And so, and so we're we're able to do much more with this. Uh, Essentially, a case back in March is very different from a case today. Today, you'll be you'll get much better treatment today. So about those, and I know it's a very small percentage, but the COVID patients who say that they're experiencing long-term effects, uh, what do we know about that? We don't know too terribly much about that because it's it's a relatively small percentage. What I can say is that the severe disease manifestations of COVID-19 includes a, a large anti-inflammatory response. It's that cytokine storm that we've been talking about. What that is, is the body's natural defense mechanism going into overdrive, and it just dumps the zone with these inflammatory mediators, uh, trying to, at that point, though, the virus is probably not not too present. It may have been, may have been largely destroyed at that point. It'll, it'll still be present, but the body is just trying to find every last instance of the virus and eradicate it and, and in doing so it's doing a lot of damage to the lungs and to the heart and to any other organ systems that that's being affected by the cytokine storm uh, and so because of that you can get a lot of scarring all around the body and and it's uh, it would make sense to have long-term uh, long-term lung damage long-term heart damage long-term 
long-term damage to anywhere where the virus has been or has affected downstream. So it's entirely possible, and which is why we really can't, we really have to take this seriously because even if um, even if you're at low risk of death, if you do end up um, with a severe disease manifestation, then you could come come down with long-term damage. And this is and this is one of one of the other things that we learned too is some of the some of the signs that that you look at if you're trying to determine if you have COVID-19 or not and it's better to get treated earlier than it is to get later back in back at the beginning people were walking around with um you know mild flu-like symptoms and then when they finally decide to go or when they finally feel bad enough to to check into the ER then a lot of damage has already been done so we're getting we're getting people into treatment a lot earlier these days and that's that's also been a tremendous benefit to to people so I know we're coming to the end of our time here, but I did want to just check in with you both about one last question. So I know you're not media critics, but you are healthcare professionals. So what do you think of the media coverage of COVID-19? Uh, do you think the media is missing things or having a wrong focus, or do you think they're doing a good job covering it? I'm going to be a media critic here, Kate, and say that I think in many ways uh, the media has misinformed people more than it's informed people. It certainly has raised awareness of the disease, which is uh, obviously very, very important. Uh, but I also think they've taken in many instances an almost um, partisan viewpoint uh, on this, as opposed to one that would more aim at making sure that people understood their risks appropriately and understood how to uh, best reduce their, uh, their risk, not just of infection, uh, but of, of serious consequences uh, of, of infection. Um, I, I, I wish it were different. Um, there's the, the whole demonization of Trump and lionization of Cuomo and uh, you know, all of these uh, side things that I suppose get clicks on your website and maybe get eyeballs on your cable station, but um, they, they don't do very much uh, to really help people get a better sense of what they should do in order to best protect themselves and families. I will say that the media has been exceptionally unhelpful during this time. My blood pressure raises every time I think about how the media has comported themselves uh, throughout this whole uh, pandemic. But just to take a case in point, it's the matter of masking. I think they are a very good, lightweight solution. They don't cost very much. They're not a huge burden to people. I think they are a very small thing that can be used, and it may have tremendous benefit to society. It may. But we know that masks are not a panacea. We've always known that masks are not silver bullets about this. There was an early drive for the N95 masks because those are the only ones that would actually work to prevent um, getting infected from a respiratory disease. We've asked people to wear these these flimsy little cloth masks, which again, I, I support that entirely because just a quick justification for masks, this is a respiratory disease. So it makes sense that you put a physical barrier in front of your respiratory orifices, then you're going to decrease the spread and the velocity of your respirations, which if there's a disease on your respirations, then it'll limit the impact of your of your infection. So that's why it would help, it could help, but they're not gonna prevent you from getting sick. If you're in the middle of a crowd of COVID-19, that, that flimsy little cloth mask isn't gonna do anything for you. you know, so, and the media has been treating these masks as if you know, they are magic 
COVID-19 talismans that prevent you from infecting anybody else. If you're not wearing one, then you clearly want people to die and you're responsible for all these deaths in America. And that's not helpful rhetoric. If you want people to wear a mask, you don't tell them that you're going to kill people for not wearing a mask. That's not how it works. If you want to help people, if you want to help the public health situation, then you're going to try to recruit people to your cause. And you don't do that by telling them that they're, you know, immoral, reckless monsters. That's that's not helpful. And, um, and that is only a small case in point, as far as my opinion about the media during this time. All right. Well, Doug and Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Thanks, Kate. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening. We hope you all have a very happy Thanksgiving and we'll be back with you all on Monday. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.